Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today we are doing a special M&A episode highlighting CB Insights' acquisition of block data. This is our first M&A episode since Anthony Noto of SoFi and Clay Wilkes of Galileo came on to discuss their landmark deal earlier this year. Today's episode features Anand Sanwal, the founder and CEO of CB Insights, who, thanks to his newsletter, has probably told more people in the world he loves them than anyone else. He is joined by Jonathan Connectel, the founder and CEO of Block Data. CB Insights is one of the world's leading market intelligence and business analytics companies that seems to be expanding its reach every year. As a longtime reader of their daily newsletter, this is a special episode for me. Block Data is a blockchain and distributed ledger intelligence company that helps firms and governments decide on the use cases, companies, and projects they should pursue. The three of us talk about their companies, the acquisition, and the current state of blockchain across the world. We also walked through the cold email that Jonathan sent to Anand that started this whole transaction. I've put the actual email on the Medium article accompanying this episode, which you can find on both Warren Fintech's and my socials. Without further ado, let's get started. All right. So Anand and Jonathan, welcome to the Warren Fintech podcast. We're very excited to have you both on today in the wake of your transaction in September. And as a longtime CB Insights reader, I'm especially excited for this one. So to begin, can you each quickly walk through your backgrounds and what your company does? Anand, we can start with you. Yeah, sure. So first thing, trying for having us. Yeah, so prior to CBI, worked in venture M&A and ran a $50 million innovation fund at American Express. And I think a lot of my experience at Amex was sort of the impetus for CBI. So I did there were kind of a few things that I was seeing in my role there. You know, one sort of this explosion of technology companies and technology markets. It was actually becoming hard. And this is a while ago now. It was actually even at that time becoming hard to just keep on top of everything that was going on. And so there's just a lot of information, the signals about these companies and markets that was being generated was kind of overwhelming. And then I think we also saw the beginnings of it. I think it's actually kind of exploded more than I would have even imagined the sort of power to the people movement in technology where you know, I think historically sort of technology decisions are really centralized and now they're increasingly being atomized and happening in the business units or in product groups or in different functions. And so I think what that's doing is sort of everybody is now making decisions about technology. So we had sort of these three concurrent explosions of tech companies and markets, information, and then decision makers and buyers of technology. So CBI is essentially kind of been built to tame that. So what CB Insights does is we build technology that synthesizes, visualizes, and analyzes data on tech markets and tech companies. And the goal is to help our clients, which tend to be kind of large enterprises, to ultimately discover, understand, make better technology decisions. And the decisions kind of vary in their shape and form. They can be about which technology markets to pursue or business models to pursue, or they might be about vendors. It could be about M&A. It could be about investment. But our platform is kind of all oriented around taming all that information and helping people make decisions around technology. So 
I spent the better part of six years uh, studying maths, physics, and programming. I realized that that was not the route that I should probably go down and jumped into the startup scene where I worked doing a variety of different jobs focused on data in all of different these different companies, doing everything from private jets to Bitcoin exchanges and then working for a data company. And that's where, after that, founded Block Data, kind of for the same reasons as I think Anand with CB Insights, just really trying to help people understand kind of what was going on. And that's also where Block Data in essence, is actually a simplified, more niched form of CB Insights. So what was your uh, initial exposure and interest in blockchain? For me personally, it was all the way back, I believe in 2012, kind of, you know, discovering the Bitcoin white paper. That's where people who were there that early tend to have somehow made a lot of money. I was definitely not that person. I was the person that was buying sushi with my Bitcoin, actually. True story. Because in the Netherlands, you could start paying with Bitcoin on an early version of Uber Eats called Thijsbezorgd. But then after some time realizing what the effects of this technology could be, kind of realizing, saying, hey, well, having multiple shared sources of truth for lots of transactional data that you know anybody can effectively read and write to is probably net good for society. So I kind of then took that vision and that's why I'm still in this space and will continue to be in this space moving forward. I won't put you through the painful math of wondering how much those sushi transactions are worth <laughs> today. <laughs> but Anand, how about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, from our perspective, you know, we sort of have to be interested in what our clients are interested in, right? And so I think we've been doing research around the blockchain DLT ecosystem for a while. And, you know, we saw it was sort of approaching this tipping point, right? And that's what prompted sort of, I think, the transaction with block data, right? But for us, it's really, you know, we see a bunch of technology markets and trends emerge, right? And a lot of them actually peter out, right? They get a lot of hype and startups and companies and media that sort of We'll talk about a lot of them, you know, only some of them sort of cross over into actually becoming something. And blockchain was one of those things that sort of had a ton of hype. And it then started to feel of late a lot more real, right? And so I'd say going back to early this year, and, you know, yesterday I was talking to actually somebody at a large bank, and they actually made a really interesting comment. They said, you know, now it's actually, we're talking less about it being a blockchain company. We're just talking about it happens to be built on blockchain but solving this problem, right? And I think that was really good, you know, to see and good to hear. And I think we've been hearing sort of sentiment like that. And so, yeah, and so it was kind of like, all right, now is the time. And blockchain is just a really unique asset in the sense of it's got this really smart team, but it also has this very unique data set that's very, very specialized. And, you know, unlike, you know, I think CBI is sort of a more horizontal across a number of technology categories. And so, yeah, it just made sense because we were seeing that, that heightened interest from clients. Great. So before we jump into Blockdata itself, John, what was the genesis of this transaction? The story goes that the transaction was kicked off by a cold email and came together fully virtually in less than three months. What was said in this company defining email? Because I'd like to get Warren Fintech acquired by CB Insights as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, it really was as simple as sending an email. It's amazing how something so big can happen with something so small and so simple. But I basically just emailed Anand and just said, look, we've been working on this data set for over two and a half years now. And, you know, we're looking at what the next step is. And we think CB Insights might be a good home for what we have and kind of continuing the journey. 
So that's pretty much what I said in the email. We, and that we believe that blockchain technology is an important technology and one that many companies are investing in and partnering up in. And I think that's kind of what kicked off the email exchange of which Anand and I kind of, you know, exchanged viewpoints and exchanged data and of what we're seeing. And uh, yeah, one thing led to another. Yeah, I need to give Jonathan some credit here because we get a fair number of these. And what I appreciated about Jonathan's initial email was it was direct. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't do. They kind of talk around it. They're like, hey, let's partner. Let's like exchange notes and whatnot. It's like, listen, like, you know, just candidly, there's not time to just exchange notes with just sort of random people on the internet, right? And so it's really helpful when somebody says, I've thought about what we're doing and I think it could fit into what you're doing and just is very clear about that. I really appreciate it. It was just sort of, it wasn't a lengthy email, but it was just a lucid email. And I was like, all right, I know where Jonathan's coming at this from. And it wasn't like, we both got to spend 30 minutes feeling each other out and like doing this weird dance that people do. And like that term partner is like one that just becomes sort of bastardized, right? Because it's like, well, what does that mean? Do you want me to become a customer? Do you want me to like, I thought that was just a very like refreshing thing because, you know, especially post-block data in the Dow Jones acquisition, we get... A lot of these, now I just point blank ask people, I'm like, hey, when you say partner, do you mean you want to potentially look at being acquired? I, you know, I say like, listen, I don't mean to be too forward, but I just want to understand because it helps us figure out who on our team should be involved, right? Because if it's a data partnership, that's a totally different team at CBI than, you know, maybe we're looking at M&A, right? And so I think what he did was atypical. And I think that actually just made it, we could just jump into like the fray really quickly, which is nice. So what challenges, but also benefits did you encounter doing this deal digitally, I guess, from both sides? From my side, I think it's quite hard to fill someone out over a video conference, over a video call. So there was a lot of back and forth in that. But I think that's where, you know, as Anand was just mentioning, this kind of real honesty and brutal honesty is what allowed this to happen. And I think if it would have been done any other way, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, I'd echo what Jonathan said. You know, I think doing things virtually is always challenging, right? I think COVID just sort of forced a constraint and so you have to deal. And so I think that we did a good job there. I think there was, from our side, there was a little bit of concern about, hey, this is a, a Netherlands entity. How is that going to work from like a legal, right? And, you know, I have to give credit to the Netherlands is just from an operational perspective. Ease of doing business was actually quite good. We had to do sort of weird notarization of documents over Zoom and they would like ask me to tilt my camera so they could see me signing. And so it was like, you know, it's kind of unique in that way. You know, I'd say the only other sort of challenge maybe from the CBI side is just we've got X number of things we're going to do in a year and it always just becomes about resource allocation and kind of strategy. And I think internally, that was probably the thing I had to pitch, right? Is like, hey, this is a, a nascent company. How big is this going to be for us? And it was like, listen, I think this is a really interesting option on a potentially massive market in the future. And this team has already done a lot of good work. And, you know, as a company gets bigger, you know, it's easy to find reasons not to do stuff. And you almost have to push to say, listen, what do you have to believe that this would make this just a remarkable success? And that's the more interesting discussion to have. And then we started digging into some data we have on leads and market sizing and a bunch of things. And we're like, listen, there's, there's enough ingredients here that, again, if you take an optimistic view of what could happen, this could be a really meaningful part of CB Insights. It's a little bit of like internal syndication that has to happen. 
a bunch of years ago, we wouldn't have had to do that. I and mean, we're not a massive company by any stretch, but we're just bigger. That is something you need to kind of like, there was a little bit of evangelism that I probably had to do internally just to get people to understand and sort of maybe change perceptions a little bit to think about what could go well. Definitely. And then Jonathan, could you just talk a little bit more about block data, what it is and what your core research product is, and you know maybe how that helps CB Insights really differentiate in the market? The best way to explain it is like technology as a topic is really, really wide. And I think that's kind of what CB Insights has done a great job at is understanding kind of the entire market of technology in general. This is a very broad term, but that's when we look at technology like blockchain and especially at crypto and kind of what's going on in that space, there is a lot more data that's available. So you can go really, really deep. And it's also data that is changing almost month to month. You know, terms in the, in the blockchain space seem to change every month. And that's something that block data has always been focused on is how do we ingest and synthesize this data into something that's usable? And how do we create a taxonomy that can accurately represent what's going on in this complex and fast moving ecosystem? That's kind of block data. I think there's a large opportunity as the blockchain ecosystem evolves to accurately keep a track of what's going on to try and increase the awareness of the adoption of the technology. But also as people have to actually make decisions in terms of what's going on in this space, if they can't actually surface the data and surface what's going on, it's going to be impossible for them to actually make decisions. Yeah, I think from our perspective, part of the allure of block data was just that whenever we did research on the blockchain DLT ecosystem, we saw a ton of interest from clients and prospective clients, right? And so, you know, in our model, Ryan, I think you probably understand it well, is, you know, we tend to put a fair amount of research out into the public kind of ether, right? That's been really good for our brand. It also like generates leads, right? And so blockchain's always been like one of the top topics. Like it's, you know, it's up there with sort of AI in terms of interest level. And so that was a good initial sign. And so when Jonathan reached out, I think we saw it as an opportunity that to go deep on a space that again, as I mentioned earlier, was like at this inflection point. And then I think as we dug a bit deeper, there were sort of three things that jumped out, right? There was a depth of data that block data had. And I think, you know, Jonathan kind of highlighted it's a unique kind of ecosystem, right? And so there's just ecosystem or technology specific taxonomy and terms that are valuable to clients, right? So they had this data, they built a product, which, you know, when I look back at CBI, is actually like way ahead of where we were at a similar time frame. It's just, and it's tailor made for this ecosystem. And then we had a team that kind of knows the space really well and who just deeply care about the technology area. So all of those things were a draw. And then from our perspective, blockchain's at the sort of tipping point where if we can help clients with what I would think of as uncertainty reduction, that's hugely powerful for them, right? Because there's a lot of noise still in any technology market. I wouldn't say this is specific to blockchain, right? Like whenever something becomes hot, you get 15, 20% of people who are building sort of something really real and substantive, and then you have right. a lot of hangers on and jump in, right? And so I think that's a really unique opportunity for us to, one of our clients, to actually help them distill the sort of the great from the not so great. And if we do that, I think it actually increases liquidity in the ecosystem because it makes the cost of transacting less, right? Because it's just that it's removed. And so I think what they built had this depth and I think interesting applications to our clients to help them reduce uncertainty. You know, those that are interested in blockchain and moving forward, you know, in the ecosystem and understanding it better. So I think those are some of the things that we really liked about 
product, the data, and then the applications at PB Insight. And then safe to say you're both quite bullish on blockchain, distributed ledger technology, and other contemporary technologies. What major roadblocks are there that still need to be solved for us to see the widespread and wide-scale adoption of these technologies that everybody's hoping for when they say, you know, it's internet 2.0? I think that the first really high level one is the regulation of the technology, which is something traditionally that has scared away enterprises from committing or overcommitting because they're like, hey, is this legal? Can I actually do this? What is Bitcoin from a regulatory point of view? That's something that's now starting to be clarified, which is great for the development of the technology. And also, I think from an adoption perspective, what's starting to happen is the technology is reaching this maturity phase where companies are moving out of this kind of pilot playground area and they're moving into the production phase of their applications. And what we're starting to see, although it is coming pretty slowly, is really trying to determine what is the economic value that they're getting out of utilizing blockchain-based technology within their stacks. And this is what I think we're really excited to continue to track. I think I'll zoom out a bit. I think the challenges that we would argue that blockchain or DLT has, they're not very dissimilar from any new technology ecosystem that's rapidly growing. You have this explosion of companies and projects and just sort of what, you know, things going on in the space. And that's amazing because it drives more innovation. It leads to better products, new use cases you know, are discovered, you get more talent coming into the ecosystem. So that's all really good. In a counterintuitive way, the thing that happens, though, is the growth in companies and projects and people moving into this market actually drives this sort of weird cognitive load for people who want to work with that technology, right? So that cognitive load ends up being on buyers of the technology, investors in it, partners, acquirers, and, you know, ultimately even the users, we're sort of over-communicated to these days, right? Like there's just too much news, there's marketing pitches, there's webinars, like there's just so much that's coming at you. And so there's so much information, it can become overwhelming. And so as a result, what we see sometimes is conversations about a certain new technology remain superficial, right? So we'll see, you know, we do a lot of like mining of earnings calls. We'll see people talk about and C-level execs drop these terms on earnings calls But I think when you actually scratch the surface and you see, hey, have they actually done an investment or acquisition or partnership in the space? And there's sort of this walk versus talk dichotomy. And that's just because they don't know what to do with it, right? And I think big data was like one of the first examples of this that I can recall. And so in the face of having too much information, what ends up happening is sometimes it's easier to sit back and wait for things to settle out a bit and then dive in. And so I think if there's ways of reducing that cognitive load and to a large extent reducing uncertainty, it's really critical to getting adoption. And I think like the more uncertainty and the more proof points that blockchain DLT are going to have, that is going to increase kind of its adoption. And I think that's where the promise lies. So I think if we can, you know, and I'm hopeful we'll play a role in sort of reducing that uncertainty and cognitive load. And therefore the buyers of the technology can sort of go in, you know, really thinking about how to use it versus, hey, is this real or is this company real? I think that's a big opportunity and a big need in the, in the ecosystem in general. I want to just add something onto that, which is I think it's a lot to do with the perception of the technology. And anyone that's been in blockchain for long enough, you know, maybe since 2012 or 2014, is when you go to maybe a, a C-suite who is someone who maybe is starting to get gray hair and you say blockchain, they straight away go Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, illegal. And that's how it's been. And this is kind of this key perception shift that's also now starting to change. Absolutely. 
And so, and so I think this is slightly related, but Anand, can you talk about the Perez technological surge cycle that you've mentioned in a few of your articles, what it means and where you believe blockchain sits within right now? I would assume from your answer, you think it's probably in the turning point area. Yeah, I do. So, you know, I think it's a great framework by Carlotta Perez and, and she's got a, a great book around this, right? And I think like it's just really informative in the, you know, they have sort of the installation phase, they have this sort of turning point phase and the deployment phase. And I think blockchain kind of had that installation phase and now is at that turning point. And, and that's really what we're looking for. And I think a lot of technologies don't make that jump, right? They tend to they become a large cemetery of uh, technology markets and things that, you know, maybe became building blocks for other large technology categories, but that never transcended into the deployment phase. I like frameworks. I think it's, you know, it's an elegant sort of simple framework to look at to look at various technologies. And yeah, I think, you know, when we look at blockchain in particular, right, it kind of like had its its sort of significant frenzy stage already, right? And I think it's moving past that. But that frenzy stage created a lot of a lot of innovation. And I think as Jonathan mentioned earlier, the regulatory environment are starting to, you know, have a bit more structure, which I think is going to be really important for the ecosystem in general. There's probably a bit of a hangover for some of that kind of crypto craziness that happened that we're going to have to still deal with and make sure that people understand like this is a real technology that has real applicability to solving some major problems that these large organizations have. But I think kind of as every day goes on, like that memory of the craziness is starting to subside a bit. And people are, I think, starting to have more productive discussions around how to use this technology. Yeah. And kind of branching off that. So Jonathan, can you just share what the different regulatory frameworks or really appetite has been on a national level, maybe just comparing the US to EU and then maybe China or India as another major player? Sure. So if we take the US as the first example, where we're at now is the regulatory bodies like the SEC and the OCC are literally going on record and they're saying, we believe that crypto-based or blockchain-based networks are probably the future of the financial infrastructure, which two years ago during the ICO craze in 2018, if you would have said that's going to happen in the future, people probably would have looked at you saying you're a little bit crazy. And this is really positive for the ecosystem. Um, One of the most interesting things now is that it's legal for US bank to provide custody of dollars for effectively stable coins. So for example, USDT is one that people know, which is actually a direct response from the US against the CBDC project from China. Now, that's where if we then take this over to what's going on in China, it's very much in their interest to try and debase the traditional financial system, to try and think forward. You know, China has a long-term vision of where they see the world is going to go. But also in the way that the Chinese kind of view citizenship and view the control over the economy, having a single source of truth of which you can see everything that's going on and who transacts with who is kind of what they're looking for. Now, I don't want to get too political on this, but anybody looking at this sees that there are both pros to this technology and there are also cons. If we look at the EU, what's really interesting is they actually believe that data is the lifeblood of economic development or activity. And that's how important the EU looks at data. Now, blockchain is just a data management technology. And that's where the EU wants to create, I believe it's eight unique data environments for different industries, where they strongly insinuated, they did not say they insinuated it could be running on blockchain based technology. And that's where what we're seeing in CBDCs, 
the regulatory understanding is starting to happen that this technology can bring benefits that based off of the traditional way the systems are currently set up, it's just not sustainable and it's actually becoming inefficient to continue to support the way that it currently works and saying, hey, at some point, we're probably going to have to make a jump. And this kind of regulatory clarity is making everyone in the blockchain ecosystem kind of going like, finally, it's happening. <laughs> right. So how can these regulations instill legitimacy and trust without really stifling too much innovation? I know kind of in the fintech space, generally, at least in the US and the Middle East, there's been a lot of these fintech sandbox ideas for development. So the sandboxes have been a great place to, for companies to play and the regulators to learn. I think something is that people have been scared of regulators, but regulators around the world in general have done a pretty good job of watching and waiting. And the SEC is very good at this, where it waits and then it says, no, I don't like that. We're not going to let that happen. But the rest of the time, it's just waiting. And then I'm not sure if you want to add on or... No, John, this is uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if, if you could add anything there, then you probably didn't need to buy them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So more of a general question, maybe going back to you, Anand, if you had to pick, where do you see the most growth in the next maybe five years in blockchain distributed ledger technology? Is it financial services, government, logistics, healthcare, or somewhere else? So I think one of the things that's been interesting since the acquisition, right, so we've been trying to take block data to our existing clients. And I've been actually surprised by the breadth or the diversity of the clients who've expressed interest. So I think there is a lot of appetite across different sectors. I think if we had to, again, when we think about where we should probably be focused, I'd say financial services is probably number one. You know, regulation is moving quickly there. There's a lot of clarification around laws that is happening. Capital markets is one area that the team actually just recently dug into and is actually doing sort of a series of research around and looking at capital markets infrastructure. So I think there's a lot of momentum, I would say, in the financial services and capital markets areas. And then, you know, again, like if I just go back to the thesis, we really like the fact that this has, it's a horizontal sort of technology. So, you know, when we look at education, supply chain, there's just so many different applications. And I think we're seeing that sort of prove out in the early kind of interest that's coming from different folks. I think we've had, you know, cosmetics companies to major tech companies that are thinking about their supply chain all the way through to banks and regulators. But I would say like if we had to pick one that area that we probably want to spend the most time on right now, it's definitely financial services. And Jonathan, do you have a take as well on any sectors that you've seen really a lot of promise in the coming years? Yeah, I think it, uh, to reiterate what Anand said, it, it really is financial services right now. It's putting it really bluntly, but finance powers the global economy. Any single transaction from any other industry is always settled in the financial industry. And so we're hoping that if you imagine it's kind of like this innovation that's happening through the middle, which is financial services, and then it's going to spill over into all these other industries over time. And are there really any sectors that should be using this technology, but there has been you know, really just no adoption or, or momentum yet? One thing I always like to say is it's almost impossible to mention any industry that does not have any project that's currently working on blockchain technology. I think a couple of years ago, you could have identified a few, whereas now, but um, yeah. And then Anand, this is the second acquisition for CB Insights in just about two months following the Dow Jones Venture Source acquisition. 
what has inspired this kind of mini M&A spree? And can we expect more of this moving forward, especially in the international space? I wouldn't say that we've got a target to do, you know, X number of acquisitions, right? We've certainly received, I think, a lot of inbound, right? I think we are now on a lot of investment bankers' email list as a result of these couple of transactions. So it's been nice to see, you know, I think there's some really interesting companies that have come across our desk and really interesting data sets that, you know, we are, I think we have our ear to the ground, but there's some data sets that we've seen that are like, oh, wow, wouldn't have even realized that that's a thing. And entrepreneurs are grabbing them in really novel ways. And then we're, of course, kind of looking proactively. In terms of international versus USA, I'd say like there, we don't really have a strong preference, right? I think we've seen companies kind of from all over. It's really, I think, ultimately about the team and then the data set or product they've built. When I think of data, like the type of data we like is what we internally call dirty data. So if it's already highly structured or semi-structured and you can throw algorithms at it, and there, I'm not sure there's a moat that can be built. So we like, we've seen some data sets where people are ripping data out of PDFs, right? And they're doing it in a pretty manual way, right? But I think the beauty of that type of model is that like the reality is most people don't have a stomach for that type of nasty work. So if you actually go and spend the time on that, it actually becomes a moat unto itself. So I think we're sort of incredibly still hungry for unique and dirty data sets that they all need to relate ultimately to helping our clients make better technology decisions. So, you know, we've gotten some inbound from like really interesting companies, but they're just in a totally different problem space. So that wouldn't be a good fit. But I'd say like, you know, there's folks doing interesting things with kind of dirty data and that believe CBI might be a good platform that they can use to kind of accelerate their growth, right? I think we've got a newsletter, we've got a bunch of clients, we've got, you know, some kind of a, a tiny company in the grand scheme of things and what I think we can become. But like, you know, we can, I think, accelerate growth of companies. So continue to look, don't have anything that I can announce today. But yeah, we definitely continue to be proactive in the market and look forward to seeing like, anybody who reaches out. If you do do it, please do it the way Jonathan did and just be very forthright with what you're reaching out about. Yeah, John, I think everybody's going to want <laughs> to see that email template at some point to try and get themselves acquired. <laughs> Just a quick show note here, Jonathan forwarded me the actual email. We've posted it with the episode, which you can find on all of our socials by searching Wharton Fintech or Ryan Zauk. And then actually, Anand, are you familiar with Crux Informatics, the data utility company? I'm not, but I'm going to write that down right now. So Crux calls themselves this kind of like humble, neutral utility for quality data. They ingest data sets from tons of providers like MSCI, then clean it, standardize it, and send it to clients like hedge funds in any format that they want. They've built some pretty cool partnerships as well with the major cloud providers. Okay. Yeah, no, interesting. I'll take a look. And, you know, at a minimum, I would say the one thing that's been interesting as a result of just doing a couple of transactions is like, my network of founders building data companies has like mushroomed. And, uh, you know, if, even if it doesn't result in a transaction, which most are probably not going right. to, it's been really cool to just talk to people building really interesting companies. And sometimes they're behind where we are. In certain cases, they've actually been ahead of where we are in terms of their size. And so, you know, and so like each of those conversations is an opportunity to learn about an interesting market or, share stuff we've done. So I think it's been very cool in, you know, adjacent kind of benefit of just talking to lots of really interesting people as well. Great. Thank you. Well, I think that's a perfect place to stop today. And thank you both for coming on the show and Nand and Jonathan. I really want to thank you for 
putting the time together and especially on U.S. Election Day to record this M&A episode in light of your transaction. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. And yeah, again, you know, really pleasant distraction on Election Day. So thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Ryan. It was, was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. If you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.